This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, and welcome to Everything Is Fine, a podcast for women over forty. I'm Jen Romolini, and I'm Kim France. Today on the show, or later on the show, we have. Music journalist Jessica Hopper, which I'm super excited about. But before that, Kim, how are you doing this week? I'm pretty good this week, and I'm going to tell you why. My hair, my hair is really good this week. Incredible. Why? Why is that? Well, I got my. I have extensions, which I got redone last week. And when we redo my extensions, we also do a relaxer because I have very frizzy, curly hair, mm-hmm. and it gets rid of the frizz. And um, so it just like the, the extensions are fresh. It's not frizzing when I go outside and it's 85 degrees out. And I find that like having good hair is actually like really making the whole week go better. You know, when the hair is easy, everything kind of does follow. I do find that to be the case. It, it really is. A, it's a big self-esteem boost when the hair is just going right. When the hair is going right, I just want to run down the streets so as many people as possible can see me with good hair. I mean, there is also the thing of like that you're out in the world again now. And it's like, that's starting to really set in for me. I'm like, oh, outfits. Oh, what else can I do? You know, it's like, yeah, being being seen is kind of cool right now. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, being seen is definitely cool right now. And I mean, the other thing I'm realizing, I had the boyfriend had a birthday last week and I had the most impossible time making a reservation anywhere. I finally got a good place, but but it's like people are out 
people are just out everywhere. It's kind of awesome. Yeah, people are out. Um, it's still, restaurants are still a little weird. Like, it's still like uh, they're understaffed. The mm-hmm. menus are a little weird. Like, everything's a little bit. True. Like, True. It's not exactly like before. It's it's a little bit of a, it, it's, there's, it's a change, you know? It's like a simulation of the past in a way, I find. That's what I've been finding going out, but. Well, because everybody's, everybody's just trying to do it the way they kind of remember doing it, you know, given the restrictions that are still in place. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I, just so you know, I, I have a massive recommendation for our listeners. Cannot um, wait. Which I'm going to write about on the Patreon because it was like so life-changing for me, this movie. So I watched this movie this this week, and it was really hard to find. I had to only watch it on like the Metrograph website, which is a, I think is a theater in New York. Is it that is, true? Yeah. Okay. It is. So, and I had to pay five dollar membership to watch it. But anyway, it's called um, Strangers in Good Company, and it's directed by this woman, Cynthia Scott. It's from nineteen ninety. It's a Canadian movie, and it's about it's. It's a movie that, like, you know, every once in a while you see a movie or you, you know, you experience a piece of art and you're like, I have never seen anything like this before in my life. And it's mm-hmm. like the most exciting surprise. But anyway, the movie is called Strangers in Good Company and it is about this group of older women. I think the age span is like 65 to 80. Um, and they are, they're on a bus trip. And the bus breaks down and they're stranded in the middle of the woods together. And they wind up for three days having to become like survivalists together. And they're strangers. And so they wind up telling each other the stories of their lives. And I mean, I could cry, honestly, just even talking about it. It is such a a really intimate movie. And all of the women, it's 1990, so it's pre-Botox, pre-fillers. All of the women's faces are like stunning and interesting and lined Mm -hmm. and there are like some flashbacks or not in um to the film but flashbacks to pictures of their them actually in their lives growing up Mm -hmm. and it is such a meditation on you know the sum of our parts and what we regret and what we what we hold on to and trauma and I mean and not even trauma like in a depressing way in this very inspiring and uplifting way about how trauma builds us as people and I am obsessed with this movie and I want everybody to see it so it's it's really one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen about aging and I really feel like it changed my my brain in terms of getting older and see, this is the difference between me and you, Romolini, is that yes. you, watch, you watch this incredibly inspiring, beautiful art house picture. Yes. What did I watch in the last week? What? The reboot of Gossip Girl. <laughs> did, I, did I not not watch it? <laughs> I mean, look, that is merit, too. I like to keep up. I want to know what's cold. Like I'm watching also, as we both know, a show about a man and his, a, a young man and his fucked up penis, a rapper. <laughs> like, no, I so. know. I know. I know. They I both was just have thinking, value. How's the house gossip girl? Not great. Not great. But they do let you know who gossip girl is like that. That gets revealed in the first episode. It's kind of part of how the show proceeds that you know who gossip girl is 
Oh, interesting. Um, and it's kind of an interesting, you know, I, I, there were a lot of things about it that were like, oh, that was clever. Oh, that was kind of a clever take on like how things have changed since the first Gossip Girl, which I also watched was on. Um, but it's just, it's not well acted. It's not, it, 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 it's, um, it's, it's worth watching if you're like, you took your edible for the evening, you're about to get in bed and you just want to zone out. Look, and also, but also I think it's important to know what's being made. Even if it's like, you know, it doesn't, every moment doesn't have to be the Criterion collection. You know what I mean? As That's we discussed, true. Like, it's just like, sometimes you don't want that, but like, and, and I like to know what's happening in the zeitgeist because I think that it's really easy, so easy to get out of touch quickly. So I'm happy that you're watching Gossip Girl. <laughs> And but I also am really psyched that I got to see because so often I'll watch an art house movie and be like, oh, yeah, I know. Know. <laughs> like, I know when it really speaks to you. And like, but also when you have at our age, when you find a new foundational piece of art for yourself, mm -hmm. that feels like a miracle to me, whether it's a book, whether it's, you know, a painting, anything. Yep. I, I'm so thrilled to have discovered it because it's totally. such a rare experience. Um, totally. Anyway. Anyway. So here's a thing that's been on my mind a tiny bit. Tell me. So I'm in this relationship yes. um, with this person who's been, who's with me about you know, two thirds of the week and two thirds of the week, he's either in the city where his children live or he's working in another city. Okay. And so he does a tremendous amount of driving. And so we've worked out a division of labor that's highly gendered. Like okay. he goes, he drives, he's like the gat, he's like the, he's like the hunter. And I'm like the, like, I make the meals, I clean. And it's highly gendered. And I don't mind it. I'm just going to mm. say it. Now, one of the reasons I may not mind it is that I've spent most of my adult life single. So yeah. it kind of has a little bit of novelty to me. But yeah. I am kind of like, I am, I am, I am surprised and not, I, 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 I'm surprised by this. I'm surprised that it's like, I'm, I'm liking this little, you know, scenario. I, look, I think, do you like to drive? I love driving, but, okay. but, but I think, I mean, he just does it. It's a grind. It's a grind right. and it's many hours and many drives every week. And, you know, I, I'm, I get it. You know, it seems like an even trade to me. I wouldn't want to do all that driving. Right. I mean, I don't know. I do all the cooking in my house and I do all the cooking and my husband does all of the dishes. Mm -hmm. Like I don't ever, I don't touch a dish, but I do all of the cooking. And over the pandemic, the cooking, I was really fucking pissed off about the cooking. I was just like, why can't you cook? Why can't you cook one meal? Like mm -hmm. you need to know more to, do you know how to, you need to know how to do more than boil pasta. This is ridiculous. But then there was like a couple nights where my husband was away and I had to do the dishes and I was like, oh, <laughs> like, no, this balance actually works well. I mean, the truth is like everything's kind of annoying in terms of chores and it doesn't like that doesn't seem that gendered to me if he's doing all that stuff and you're doing like it doesn't, you know, it becomes out of balance. If it becomes out of balance, you'll know and you'll say, look, you need to clean a toilet. 
Yeah. No, it doesn't feel out of balance. It feels equal. And there's other stuff he does too. Right. Um, but my, but my, the thing that kind of amazes me is my like delight at it. Oh, okay. That's what you're talking about. You're actually enjoying it. I am enjoying being the little woman. Just cooking and cleaning for one person and not like, you know, not an ungrateful child. Mm-hmm. I actually think can be really nice. Like domesticity can be really nice. I remember I remember having a feeling when I was working a lot and I, you know, I had more money and I was working constantly and I had really outsourced everything, right? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this a little bit. I had outsourced cleaning, I had outsourced groceries, I had outsourced even cooking because we would order in all the time. And when I returned to those domestic chores, I was really happy. I found something really satisfying in them. And I can imagine after all these years of being single that there's some satisfaction in the stability of domesticity. Yeah, I mean, even it, it, it feels a different kind of, the domesticity makes the whole relationship feel, a di- not just for that reason, but a different kind of stable than other long relationships I've had, you know? It yeah. Just, it's yeah. just kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't mind it. I really don't mind it. But I, 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 I do think a lot of it is because I have not been doing it for the past 30 years. Right. It's like a, it's novel, but you know what that, but also that's great then. Cause you know what, that stuff can be really grounding. And I do think like it also builds more intimacy when you're just with each other and you're not always racing around to go out. And, you know, I, I think that it, having more of a home life together is a very grounding experience, even if that sounds traditional. No, it does sound traditional, but some traditional things are okay. Yeah. I you think know? it's whatever works for you. I think that the I think that if you were like I'm not doing this because this is outside of what I believe of myself as a feminist, I actually think that would be wrong. I think you have to just be in tune with what your needs are in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like it 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 like ruins my feminist cred to be doing this, you know, maybe no. in in the in the eyes of some. But it doesn't it doesn't feel that way to me. It does feel like just kind of a nice thing, which I only remark on because it surprised me. Yes. And, it, you know, and cooking for somebody is amazing. I love that. Oh, I love well, cooking for people. I mean, you know, with I've been cooking for myself for so long. It is so much nicer to, like, share a meal with somebody. I mean, it, it, it it's just nicer. And there's something nice also about... At about two o'clock in the afternoon going like, okay, dinner's on me. How's that going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's very different to be cooking for a partner and an adult with an adult palate than it yes. is the thankless role of just like family dinner, blah, 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 totally. blah, blah. <laughs> like, totally, totally. Which, which sounds like a chore and you've got to like do the chicken fingers for the kids. And, yeah. And oh, you have to eat the broccoli. Come on, eat the broccoli. Blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah. like. Yeah. It, no. Yeah. No, it's, it, 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 it's, it's better than that. Yeah, or like you can't put shit on the broccoli because it's going to be spicy. Or if you, you know, you've added a little cumin and the kid's like, ew, what's this? And you're like, it's cumin. (laughs) (laughs) Or there can't be any green on the plate. 
Yeah, no green on the plate. The food can't be foods can't be touching each other. Like that shit's annoying. Like cooking for somebody who likes to eat and then sharing a meal with them. That's a delight. It is a delight. So I guess it's really not that remarkable that this is something I'm enjoying. Well, I'm glad for you. I'm I'm a little bit jealous. I would uh-huh. love to be cooking just for a person who would appreciate my cooking. Um, well, I must say I would I as much as I'm enjoying this currently, I also you know, wish I knew what it was like to have a kid to cook for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, I, I would say there's lots of shit that you, that you could wish for. I don't know if that's it. You <laughs> like, know, I mean, I have, I have my attitude about not being a mom, which I realize I'm bringing up, you know, this is a huge topic that I'm bringing up in the final moments of our introduction to an episode about something else entirely. But my, my I love you anyway. Thank you, honey. But my but my feelings about not being a mom, like have I it's always been a hole. It's always been a hole and often I felt like that hole was getting bigger as the years marched on. But lately, the past couple of years, I've been like, you know, I would have loved that. I'm I, I feel sad it didn't happen for me. I'm fine with this. I'm glad to hear you say that because I can imagine that that I can imagine that's a huge thing. I mean, even for me having one, I often have really felt like I wish I had had a second. I wish I, you know, so Mm -hmm. I can't imagine if I hadn't had them at all. But equally, I was talking to somebody um, the other day who um, has decided after like a long and complicated fertility journey to stop trying to have a kid. Mm. And um, she's going to be 42 this year. And we were having this this really intense conversation about it. And what she said was after, you know, a couple tries at IVF and all of these different things, I don't actually know if I want want a kid and I feel weird about that. I feel weird about deciding fully not to, almost as if the ambiguity would make this easier because I feel like Mm. I'm supposed to want a kid. But through the process of trying and not being able to, she started looking around and seeing, you know, older mothers and, you know, older parents with an only child and how complicated that was Mm -hmm. for the kid and for them. And she said, you know, there's a part of me that feels like I know too much to go into this. Well, I will tell you something, and maybe it's true of your friend. It's definitely true of me. Because I'm not a mother, mothers, my friends who are mothers will confess things to me that I don't think they confess to anyone else because I'm not going to judge them. I mean, I confess to everybody that motherhood is a scam. Because <laughs> you, do. You, you broadcast it weekly. I broadcast it weekly. I love my child. Motherhood is still a fucking scam. <laughs> but you know. but um, anyway, complicated issue and maybe something we continue to visit because I think it's, I think it's an interesting issue for women. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's such a core and fundamental part of who we are, who we are not, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that not being a mother has probably shaped me in as many ways as being a mother shaped my mom, you know? Totally. I mean, I will say with the aging thing and having a kid, 
You are acutely aware of how old you are as your kid gets older. One, because they remind you constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm sure. At, as, they're individu- as they're individuating, I mean, my kid has been like, you can't wear that. What are you doing? That is too, <laughs> that you're too old to wear that. This has really been a thing with the crop tops lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, That's hilarious. But also just the experience of having a kid and just being like, oh, like mine is 11 and oh, this is about to be their time. Mm-hmm. It, it really is marking time for me in a different way. And I'm individuating from them too and having to say, no, I get to continue to explore younger people's music and younger people's clothes if I want to. And I have to be outside of my child's judgment because the kid will constantly remind you, I'm, and I imagine I'm just at the beginning of this and it's only going to get worse, that you are old, that you are their parent, that you are uncool, that, you know, like mm-hmm. all Absolutely. of these things that you're free, that you're free of if, you're, if you don't have one, but that's an important part of their identity and becoming who they need to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, worth thinking about. Yeah, we're all worth thinking about. Well, I really like Jessica Hopper. I really liked talking to her. This was interesting. And we went in directions that I was really excited to go in um, just in terms of work and Gen X feminism and all of it. It was a, it was a cool conversation, I think. So. Yep. Yep. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. All right. Oh, and don't forget, I just want to say before this, Ashley Ford's book, we are reading it. Yes. Well, by the time this comes out, we will be sort of in the last week or so. Uh, we're going to be talking to Ashley in early August. So catch up with the book, Somebody's Daughter. It's great. It's really great. All right. Let's get into it. All right. Our guest today is the music critic Jessica Hopper. Jessica has written for Rolling Stone, the New York Times Magazine, and the Village Voice, among other publications, and while still in high school, started the influential fanzine Hit It or Quit It. She also had the very cool job of being the DJ for This American Life, and was the first music editor of the teen girl webzine Rookie, and an editor at MTV News and Pitchfork. Additionally, she's the author of The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, which just came out in a new revised and expanded edition and is just great. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Let's talk about your book first, which came out in 2015 and was just reissued in an expanded version. You know, I was thinking, like, obviously with a title like this, you're making a larger cultural statement and planting a flag in the ground. But can you talk about your intention for this book and how it came to be? Yeah, I had received, you know, interest in doing anthologies of my work earlier on and and before I'd ever even put out a book, because in part because I think I was like a... um, I wrote a lot. I was a columnist for Punk Planet and, you know, had zines and and all of this. So even when I was younger, there was still a lot of uh, work out there to particularly to to potentially be anthologized. Um, But as I got older and, um, you know, further into my journalism career and had a book or two out, I was still talking to editors and publishers about, you know, I would really like to do an anthology of my criticism. And I I kept facing this same bad argument. I mean, it's not even an accurate argument, but just editors saying there was no precedent. There was no precedent. And I would say, well, what about Chuck Klosterman or, you know, 
Rob Sheffield or what about, you know, Ellen Willis's, you know, Out of the Vinyl Deeps, whatever. And they would just say, well, those are different sorts of books or Ellen Willis is dead or that was on an academic press or, you know, what what Chuck Klosterman does is so different and this is feminist and it just doesn't have the same, you know. And I just got a lot of really uh, terrible arguments, mm-hmm. but they all revolved around there's no precedent. And so I just wanted to... You know, initially the title was sort of like a joke with me and my initial editor on the book. Um, and then and then it became the real title. And it became the real title in part because I just didn't want that same argument to be encountered by anybody who was trying to do something similar. Who Anybody else who was trying to uh, publish feminist music criticism. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's um, you know, the, the book is not, the title isn't, uh, certainly isn't intended as any sort of act of erasure. You know, I mean, there's books going back to, you know, Phil Garland and her book was in like 1967, 1968, something like that, about R&B. And there is a long history, a long tradition of feminist music criticism and, um and in some ways, this is is book. I really mean it to be a a connection uh, between those, you know, historic yeah. pioneering works and right now. Mm-hmm. Did people interpret it as an act of erasure? I think I think some people did. Some people I think were really pissed about the title, and and they were not. Um, maybe understanding that the work that the title was trying to do, or um, I think, um, you know, but then I've also had, <laughs> you know, Bob Criscow and Greil Marcus tell me, no, it really is. And these other books, you know, this was more a memoir and this was this, this was not a collection of criticism. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of leave the, <laughs> the title of the eye of the beholder uh a bit because for me my intent was really um to help as you said plant a flag sort of uh, stake some space for anyone who was coming up in my wake or anyone who was trying to do a book that's along these lines so that there is something that very much demarks precedence yeah, and you know, I think by by giving it this title, it's such a big swing. I love how it's a big swing, and I think it it, it actually creates just like what you just said. It's it allows people who come after you to make those. It normalizes making a big swing, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and for me, it it also is just about, um, you know, the discussion of it uh too you know it's like it's 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 sort of uh you know a lot of my career has been kind of um in the fuck you heroes vein um and so i really um i really too wanted to go like well think about all the books that are collections of music criticism by you know the canonical men of this world um, be they living or dead, be they Lester Bangs or otherwise, and then how many can you name? How many line your shelves um, of women or uh, writers of color or people who have, you know, historically been marginalized within this space? 
Well, it's such a, I mean, rock criticism is just one of the ultimate white boy venues. It, it, I mean, it, it, and it was that way for an incredibly long time. Like I was about to say, it, it's kind of amazing that you could title that book what you titled it in 2015. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it still kind of blows my mind that even though, um, you know, there's more and more books, particularly within the realm of, uh, you know, music criticism, memoir and biography, uh, within like, you know, music, music book world by women, you know, it is still dominated by, um, by men, still. Even though I think, you know, the, the books that, that women are putting out, particularly in the last couple of years, are just, you know, incredible and incendiary. And, and a lot of different folks who are coming from historically uh, marginalized perspectives within music criticism, you know, whether it's Hanif Abdurraqib or Sasha Geffen or Jen Pelly, um, are really making some of the most revolutionary and exciting books within you know, the last few decades of music criticism. And we see what happens when when those folks get published and their books are hugely influential, they're being taught, and, and maybe most importantly, allow readers and writers to see their own perspective reflected when it comes to criticism and to see things interrogated in ways that they've been wanting to read their whole lives. I mean, that's certainly how I feel reading those folks' books. Let's talk for a second just about the industry, because you've been writing about music for, according to my calculations, um, close to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wild? Ha- I don't feel that it is. Well, it's remarkable that you started at 16. I mean, I, that's part of your story that I don't know that we appropriately introduced, but you started a fanzine at 16 because you were pissed off about a Babes in Toyland review Mm -hmm. in the Chicago Reader. No, that that was, that was in, it was in a, uh, like a local music monthly in Minneapolis, which there was quite a few of this being, you know, 1990. Yeah. 1990. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. You were in Minneapolis. Um, but that you, you've been a paid professional writers since you were 16. Have you seen women's roles change, both I'm thinking here as artists and also on the business side of things? Yeah, I mean, there's certain things that have stayed the same, some of which I didn't quite notice until I got older, which is that, you know, at some point in my early 30s, I looked around and I was like, why am I one of the oldest people I know doing this? Like, oldest woman I know doing this? I'm like, 32 you know like I looked around and I was like why aren't there women older than 35 who are like the titans of this thing you know why aren't the people who are my heroes from when I was a teenager you know my my heroines um why aren't they still around but like the dudes that even preceded them are still here you know what I mean? So I, I really sort yep. of paid attention to uh, the landscape of who was in it um, <laughs> in more as I got older, which I think is pretty natural. Um, that part hasn't changed. That part hasn't changed. I can name the three or four women working in music criticism who are my same age or older. Um, 
and and you know the things that have changed i think as an industry has certainly been like while there's fewer gatekeepers thankfully um there is also less opportunity there's less paying opportunity and while mm-hmm. there are more uh critics of color and young critics from all sorts of different perspectives and backgrounds who are now writing places where they're being widely read. Uh, there are significantly fewer opportunities um, just generally for music criticism. You know, five of the alt-weeklies that I wrote for really regularly uh, ceased publication just in the year that I was working on this revised and expanded edition. And in some cases, you know, completely wiped their their archives and all of this um, stuff that is that's just generally useful in terms of um, you know research, music history, knowing who came before you, building on other people's work, etc. And um, so there's certainly been great strides forward in terms of um, broader representation um, and. And a lot of the folks who are coming up um, in this in like a younger generation of music criticism, they come with their own canon and they uh, are really broadening the dialogue in some ways. But also um, there's just, I think, a lot less opportunity and I think there's less, I don't want to say respect for music journalism, but just people are not... Um, publications are not really interested in uh, expanding their coverage. Music coverage is oftentimes, you know, one of the first things to go. And well, I, cause there's no money in but it anymore. Also, yeah, I mean, also there is a sort of neutering. I feel like of criticism generally, right? I mean, that's a yes. larger conversation, yes. but you know, we're so that as the separation of church and state in most media companies has been blurred so much, we're so afraid to piss off celebrities in any form, mm-hmm. right? And so criticism's yeah. lost so much of its bite. And it's necessary, mm-hmm. right? But, I mean, I don't even know where to find criticism anymore, really, outside of, like, no. the places, you know, that everybody knows, the New Yorker, the, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the only places where it's managed to kind of stay powerful are places that have that um, really strong dividing line between um, editorial interests and and everything else that magazines have to do or publications have to do to stay alive. Um, in, in, you know, I mean, this is this is kind of, I'm sure this is <laughs> something that you guys remember from your straight up magazine days um, is, you know, all that sort of quiet, um, you know, backdoor quid pro quo, you know, we got to keep such and such publicist happy because their other client is our biggest, you know, our biggest selling cover and we need them for September or we need this for that. And, and it's just a lot of, um, I think over the years, a lot of that sort of, um, horse trading got a lot more, began to sort of dictate so much more of the coverage. I mean, I think it's, it's always been, it's always been there. And, um, but I think there was, maybe there was just more, 
leverage and acceptance around criticism. You know, you wanted a record reviewed, you wanted it covered, you so people were just like, oh, well, then then that's just how it is. You well, know, there's also that, more the, status too, right? So because like the celebrity, yes. the celebrity needed needed the publication, right? A little mm-hmm. much more than they do now. Now with social media, they needed it to get mm-hmm. their message yep. out, right? So now we're in a situation mm-hmm. where you're absolutely right. The publication doesn't. What's the leverage, right? Oh, they want mm-hmm. they want to have a they want to have a photo shoot. I mean, that's about what you get. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of their mm-hmm. desire to be in a publication, and so then that sort of trickle downs and it trickles down and affects everything. I feel like. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, one of the really big differences is like, you know, when I first started even reading music magazines, you know, fifteen, sixteen, there were um, a lot of lots of times, you know, major cities would have at least one or two big free local monthly music papers that were about people who were coming through town and new records and, you know, scene reports of all different sorts. And then you also had all weeklies and then you had people at daily papers who were like, you know, John Fogarty's back and, you know, whatever, covering whatever's happening at like the stadium and local music. And then beyond that, you had... Uh, sometimes regional magazines or you had like kind of specialty magazines, um, you know, that like maybe record store chains, you know, you'd have stuff like Musician Magazine. And then you had national magazines that were more um, general audience. You had genre magazines. You had um, things that were very focused on independent music, um, you know, and the one that survives of that is Alternative Press. Um, but you know, you, there were hundreds, hundreds more music publications when I was even 25. Right. Um, and so there's just, along with the broader shrinking of the industry, it's just, uh, been, um, long, long, slow death knell for music criticism. And I think part of that you know, um, part of that is, I think, has to do with the the sort of um, patriarchal structure of canonical music criticism, you know, traditional music criticism, that it was very competitive, that it put a, a huge value on, um, you know, the, the big national magazines it did not build an infrastructure because it was competitive there is not like a um any kind of like trade organization or you know like in uh you know like poetry magazine kind of situation where it's like here's a magazine that's just been publishing new poets for a hundred years you know we don't have something like that in um that's really helped sustain things within music journalism and i think it's just been a huge loss and so the folks that are coming up now are in a position where it's like they they really have to build what they want. And I think uh, and I really hope that um, that what they're building is is much more sustainable and, and much more community minded, because I think that could allow criticism a new future. And maybe and maybe the old criticism, the criticism that I came up with, maybe it does need to die. And and and. 
And maybe that's how it lives. <laughs> there is something about the criticism that I came up with that felt like it was such a little circle jerk of guys, always guys, making obscure references and referring to like some guy who appeared on the Colgate Jazz Hour who none of us have heard of and, and, and one-upping one another. And, and it wasn't for the, the fan. Really, it wasn't for the fan at all. I felt very much as though it was for each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's very much what I came up with. And the folks who were, you know, the exceptions to that rule, you know, Terry Sutton at City Pages, Ann Powers, um, Greg Tate, um, you know, a couple people that I read early on where they were really speaking a much a language that was much more rooted in uh enthusiasm and then uh you know like you know as an extension of their fandom but then also the other part of it was that they were speaking to the broader audience they were speaking to the uninitiated it, and and you know the sometimes i think about how earlier music criticism in a weird way was like it always felt like you had to be studying for like the pop quiz, you know, you had to, Mm -hmm. that it was like preparing yourself for, you know, for me as like a young feminist critic for, you know, basically I had, I had to constantly prove myself. And I think, you know, that's, that's young folks in a lot of different industries, you know, but part of it was like, at some point, I became very much like, oh, this is a trap. I am deeply disinterested in this. This is a huge distraction that keeps me from doing the work that's most valuable, um, I think, to my music, to, to the communities I was part of, to my readership. You know, um, I don't want to be part of, I don't want to be part of the circle jerk. Um, and I never mm-hmm. have. I never thought that was cool. You know, no. I wanted I wanted everybody to feel like they could come into music. And and that's part of my, you know, mission as a writer. Yeah. You know, I think a lot about, um, you know, Gen X feminism and, and men being the gatekeepers and how those dudes were in music journalism or anything else. But since we're talking about music journalism, since those dudes were like a way in and I think about women I know who got jobs in the 90s, early aughts because of their famous boyfriends or, you know, they got, they would literally do like a sidebar of their husband's, you know, feature, but just to get the byline because a byline's a byline. Mm -hmm. Can I interrupt for one minute to tell you that the reason why I ever wrote for Spin was because I was living with a rock critic who would only write for the LA Weekly or the Village Voice. And the editor from the Craig Marks from Spin called and was like, pick, and I picked up the phone. He called at home and, and, and Craig was like, hi, Kim, I really want you to write for Spin. Can you get Charles to write for Spin? Um, it was like I was, I, he sort of trolled this opportunity for me because what he really wanted to get to was my boyfriend. Yeah, no. And I think that we were, you know, we were, and I'm sorry that happened to you, but I think that they just, we had to fight so much with men. I mean, and I know this goes across industries because we were kind of pitted against each other. There were so few opportunities for us. Um, and I, I, you know, it felt so clicky and exclusionary in so many ways. And 
I don't know that we did enough then. I don't know if we could, but I think back and I wonder if we did enough because we had to play their game a little bit, if we did enough to be more inclusive. And it was a a failure in some ways of Gen X feminism that like that was our way in was through dudes, mm-hmm. you know? Well, also, I think, I mean, that's, that's a lot of that is just, um, you know, the, the internalizing of the patriarchy, which, which right. I don't want to say like, you can't be blamed for, but I mean, yes, part of it was failure of feminism. Um, you know, second wave feminism was so focused on jobs and material freedom. Yep. You know, um, mm-hmm. and that certain things got left behind, you know, particularly if you are working in a um, predominantly white space, you know, male dominated space, a uh, space with patriarchal hierarchies that it just made you so laser focused on getting it right, being twice as good as men being you know it was it was still it kept us so oriented in like how can i continually like game this system yes so that i can just live yes so that i can just benefit from it and I, you know i write about that some in my um in my afterword for the for the new edition of the first collection yes and even though I am several years removed from having like a, a, an active byline and actively pitching uh, editors every month, I was still afraid to call that out. But, you know, the thing that I find is that, you know, those, that entire system that I came up in um, as a, a professional freelancer, it, it really taught you whatever you do, don't betray the powerful men, don't betray whiteness, don't betray this hierarchy, because you will get punished. And you saw it happen all the time. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. um, you saw mm-hmm. people that didn't have careers anymore. You know, you saw the women that that could, you know, stomach sitting on, uh, you know, the editor's lap, uh, famously, if we're talking about spin. Um <laughs> to you know, Bob Gucci and it was a Bob Gucci and a Junior's uh, famously having interns sit on his lap. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden they had a byline. Yeah, and they had a byline that maybe mm-hmm. you were covetous of. You know, and I and I and it certainly it wasn't limited to journalism. Though I know that is our that is where our Venn diagram overlaps. You know, in, in doing the oral history of the Lilith Fair. Um, which isn't something that's in this book. If I'd put it in this book, it would have made the book like 100 pages longer. Um, <laughs> so um, maybe it's its own book at a different time. But, you know, talking to Sarah McLaughlin about, you know, some of the things that were presaging, um, bringing things to a head before they put together Lilith and her talking about going to, you know, even though she had a gold record or whatnot, really on the come up, Sarah McLaughlin, you know, going to a radio station to do promo and and the programming director kind of taking her to the side and going, yeah, thank you for coming to visit. We love, we love the record. We love the record. But, you know, we already have Lisa Loeb in rotation. <laughs> oh, God. Or, you know, Amy Mann told this story about doing all these demos um, for A&M and, and whatnot and, you know, Amy Mann, hardly a slouch. Amy Mann, one of our great living songwriters, 
bringing these demos in and, and uh, the label saying, you know, these are, these are great, but we already, we've already just signed a woman singer songwriter and it was Sheryl Crow. And right. so, you know, to me, when I look back at old issues of spin or Rolling Stone or whatever I'm coming across in my, my research for my other book, particularly, you know, it's so rare to see a woman's name. And then invariably when I do, I write it down and then I go Google her up. And then, you know, it's somebody frequently who had, you know, maybe a couple one-off bylines and then they went into PR or then they went into right. marketing. Right. And right. then, right. and then, but the, the men that they were writing alongside are people who are still working in music criticism. And so I, I am, you know, a little bit less interested in putting, you know, the failure on second wave feminism to be more inclusive. I mean, that's sort of a given feminism also uh, forever struggles to be more inclusive. Um, but put it on a system that was not built or designed to benefit anyone other than those men. Because if it if it if it could have been otherwise, it would have been otherwise. We would we would see a different shape of music journalism these days. Yeah. No, it's a let I mean I mean just talking about aging in the music industry, both as a critic and an artist, I I think of the music business as such a young person's game, but when I realize, when I really think about it, I'm mostly thinking about women being shut out after a certain age, not men. It's, you know, mm-hmm. like really, like I, I was thinking about, we were going to talk about this and I was thinking, oh, we're, let's talk about aging because like even Kim and I were talking about Madonna aging, which is a, a little bit off topic, but like. Kim, you want to talk about Madonna a little bit? <laughs> well, no. I just feel like I, I, I saw, you know, more power to her. But when I saw that um, photograph of her on performing at Pride and she was wearing like a lederhosen and she was topless, I thought to myself, this is not how 25-year-old me thought Madonna was going to age. She was so she was such a disruptor. She was such a rebel she could have done such interesting things with her career. And she seemed like a curious and interesting person. And instead she just could, she hasn't been able to grow out of this image of herself as a sex thing. And it just bums me out. But do you think the world would be interested in Madonna as a non-sex thing? Is the world, is the world of pop genuinely ready for like straight up menopausal, postmenopausal <laughs> Madonna and all that that you know Me- might figure menopausal you rock know? I'm ready for it but I don't know <laughs> I mean I'm ready for it but I I don't you know I I think I think you know I do think things have changed a little bit in the last couple maybe maybe last decade in terms of um there being more audience loyalty around women who are, you know, aging artists, whether it's, um, you know, Lucinda Williams or the continual uh, sort of, I don't want to say revivification, but like, it seems like every couple of years, people are like, oh my God, Stevie Nicks, mm-hmm. um, you know, or <laughs> yeah. or Kate Bush, which obviously I think they're, you know, really iconic um their iconic status continually fueled by uh, by Tumblr and now Instagram, you know, and, and people 
I mean, the, these women are 70, late 60s, you know, how old is Stevie? I don't know. Right. But that, um, or, or, you know, Joni, uh, obviously is, is push issues in her mid seventies at this point. Um, you know, that I think in part, we see that changing a little bit because younger music fans, I think it's more, and, and I kind of chalk this up to not just the internet, but Tumblr, um, people being more naturally curious and naturally interrogating the narratives around um, women in music, around uh, black pioneers, around queer and trans pioneers, um, and just being like, they just they just assume that those folks have been erased. Like they kind of come into fandom knowing that it's always been, you know, music journalism has always been, and music culture even, been interested in erasing those people's stories. So those folks have, uh, you know, been they're just more naturally interested in interrogating that and then also excavating those people. And so I think it's given particularly some of these women um, a greater, greater longitude. Mm-hmm. Well, there are certainly 18,000 articles about the 50th anniversary of Blue, and I didn't think that was a bad thing. Yeah, I wrote I wrote some of them. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I think um, you know, and Joni herself, Joni herself, I write about this in in the book that I'm working on now uh, about women in music in 1975. You know, Joni goes to kind of turn towards jazz in part because you know she's she's amid the the real Laurel Canyon Canyon Beaumont, so to speak. Um, and her her buddies, you know, Crosby, Still, Nash and Young, and and uh, you know, the poker night she regularly attends. It's hosted by Don Henley. Um, you know, <laughs> she's she's really around all of these uh, dudes who are rock stars and who she's ostensibly peers with. And the men are getting older, and the women in the room are forever getting younger. And she looks around and she realizes that at 35, she's the oldest woman in any room that she's in. Okay. If there's even another woman there. Jesus. Right? And so you're, you know, you're Joni Mitchell at the height of your powers. And so she said she started looking around outside of rock, which is still then fairly young as a genre. Mm-hmm. We're talking 1973, 74 here. She's looking around and going, well, where's a space where women can get older? Where women can be old, like older geniuses, and she and she sees jazz as a place where women are, are you know allowed that they're allowed to age, they're allowed to be, um, just around. They're allowed to be iconic. They're allowed to get to sixty. They're you know yeah, and still perform. Mm-hmm. And and so she turns to jazz, and you know she's she's maligned for it and people call her a dilettante and all of this but um she was also just starting to really get like kind of get to the to the acceptance of her of her own genius she was really at the height of her powers and she was really starting to realize that you know her the synthesis of her her work as a 
producer of her own work, as a vocalist, as a player, you know, that she could get anybody she wanted to be on her records and, you know, as a band leader, all of this stuff. Yeah. And she's like, finally, I got it. I can do it. And then she's looking around going like, they're not going to be into this around here. You know, this is, again, one of these situations where it's like you look around here and people are, you're maybe seeing there's not a lot of precedent for what you're doing. And you're like, I just want to be my best self. I just want to deliver my best work. I finally feel free enough to do it. I feel like I've, I've untangled myself from all the games or the lies or the hierarchies I had to come up with. I mean, that's part of the reason I wanted to write about Joni because I, I identified with that, but also I just thought that was really powerful. How do you engage with music these days? How do you find new music to listen to? I have <laughs> I have a little notebook where I keep a running list of things that I want to listen to. Normally from when I'm, whether I'm reading artist interviews or it's on Instagram or um, something comes up sometimes if I'm listening to like just the terrestrial radio. Um, I listen to college radio a lot whenever I'm driving. Um, I've had long stretches where I've kind of had to give up on the news. Um, yeah. I just, you know, I, yes. Yeah. Um, and also when there's kids in the car who are sensitive creatures, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to raise my kids in a bubble, but they get upset and they're like, who got murdered? Um, so we listen to the college radio a lot. Right. Um, and um, I just keep this running list. And then whenever I have time where I feel like I'm open, you know, like when I'm driving or I'm cleaning or I'm um, cooking, that's when I put stuff on. Fortunately, um, because I am not uh, maniacally trying to freelance in every direction, um, I don't have to spend my days trying to like keep up with right right now um and so this has actually uh allowed me uh i would say to be in greater relationship with music in a way that is is much more akin to kind of how i came into it it's my my slower early 90s pace where it's like i gotta wait for the music to come out and then I check it out, or I see what my friend says, or um, it allows me to rely more on word of mouth, and I'm interested in that. I, I like how that feels. It puts me in a deeper relationship with music. And now let's take a quick break for some ads. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. This is kind of a fuzzy question, but you know, I, I look at my playlists and I see so many songs that are just somehow suddenly 25 years ago, you know, and, and, and I, I'm so interested in hearing new music, but I don't know where to begin to search for new music. Um, you know, the other thing too, I think a, a great way too is there are some really good newsletters, you know, I'm into kind of more esoteric music than maybe most people. And I like, you know, stuff like Tone Glow, which is a really good newsletter. But, you know, 80% of the young music writers that I follow on Twitter, um, which I really try to stay off of most days, um, 
have newsletters and sometimes I just kind of I keep sometimes I keep up on them sometimes I don't but that it allows me to access that at like a slower pace and something that's not on social media um and again just keeping like this list of stuff that I can go go find um but yeah I mean I too am like wow Am I still listening? Like, I'm still listening to the Cocteau <laughs> Twins, Heaven or Las Vegas with the same frequency I always have been going on year 30. You know, um, watching watching Miley Cyrus cover Heaven or Las Vegas uh, last week uh, at the opening of her Vegas residency and apologizing to her audience for it being kind of inaccessible to them. I kind of love Miley Cyrus. I think Miley remains interesting in the ways that she confounds. But I think in this way, I think of her much more like, um, though not as uh, gifted in some ways, uh, like Linda Ronstadt. Linda Ronstadt did not sing her own material. She was known as like a tremendous song stylist and that she she knew exactly what would suit her voice, uh, what were the right songs for her. And I think Miley is like that. Miley's covers are incredible, in part because it's like she has really good material, but that also she's a she's a good song stylist, but she's also a really good mimic. That's kind of what I like most about her. Hmm. I want to I change directions a little bit because I want to make sure that um, we just talk about some things about getting older too, just because that's sort of the lens through which we examine everything here. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about anger a lot. And, you know, you start the new additions forward with when I was 15, I was furious about the world. And I wonder if you're still angry how do you deal with anger now? Like how have some of these issues sort of played out in a way, especially the anger? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. And, you know, sometimes I think about this, I think it was a Jen Pelly tweet from like mid, mid-corona time where she talked about how, something about how with everything going on in a mid, you know, amid COVID and quarantine, she found herself returning to who she was at 19, which was, you know, the punk kid forever at the back of the show at like the um, anarchist book table, like just furiously, like trying to find things that will put a, put a, whatever, just like being that, that young, returning to being that young punk person. And... I feel like that has been um, maybe in some ways the last couple of years for me. You know, I think like a lot of people, um, maybe more acutely so during this quarantine time um, and all that has uh, unfolded in the last half decade in America and, um, and before then, just getting back in touch with how I rate those things make me. Um, and I feel good about that. Yeah. 
I feel really good about that. And I feel like, um, like rage has brought me back to a certain level of awareness um, about, I don't know, everything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this sounds, this sounds really vague, but just, um, I think that only as I've got, as I've gotten older, I've learned to find ways to not be consumed by the rage, but rather propelled by the rage. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't feel like the hot lava rock sitting on top of my heart. And granted, certainly there's still those days, and there's you know injustices in America and beyond that um, that bring the lava rock front and center yeah. and just wait, you know, the weight, the uh-huh. weight on your chest. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've done a lot of different things to try to recover from the more corrosive forms of anger. Mm-hmm to appreciate them for what they bring me, to not continually um, replay the tapes in my head that animate it at inappropriate times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like being mm-hmm. being stuck in these um, old spaces, like old, old corrosive rage. Um yeah, and I, I, and, I think, and I've oh. and I've really and I've really I mean the the primary way that I've dealt with that is you know various forms of recovery and therapy and uh, finding community, but also meditation, which I resisted for a really really long time, um, but is now a very necessary part of my day, and, and also not trying to just. Um, silo that rage off to really see it and hold it and admit it and all the things that we're supposed to do is uh (laughs) you know to 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 to, um observe it rather than be absolutely consumed i was just gonna say observe it rather than reacting to it is like Mm -hmm. the biggest change it's it's and I don't know if this is your experience, but there was a long time in the middle of from being that young, angry person to being a, a woman in my forties and whatever that means, that I had a very complicated relationship with not only anger but all of my you know depth of emotion and I was so reactive and then I was trying to stuff down that reaction, right? So neither mm-hmm. of those things were super healthy and I I do think the gift of your 40s if you if you can be here and be present with yourself is observing those things in yourself but not having them take over anymore because there's a more of a presence in who you are and I Anyway, I feel very lucky to be in my forties. To be to be honest, and just oh, to be honest. yeah, you can. I mean, you couldn't pay me. Yeah. You couldn't pay me money. I, like I've I've sometimes joked with my two good girlfriends. Like, how much? I'll ask this to you guys. How how much would you have to get paid, like as like a one year salary, to go be twenty four again? Oh. <laughs> 
infinity. Wow. To like live in that for a year as a salary? I I don't know. I mean, the only thing you'd think is maybe it would be like an amazing, like it would be like wife swap or something, like an amazing experience <laughs> where you could kind of like go in and like fix some things, like a back to the future, but no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I would like to go back. I would like to go back to my 24 year old self and be like, oh yeah, I'm all right. Like, you know, I'm no idiot. I I'm would not just, ugly. I would like go back to my 20s and I just wouldn't, I wouldn't try to have like, serious relationships yeah mm-hmm. like period I don't know what business I had doing that but like sometimes when I think about you know it's like just from a round number perspective I think maybe like low millions frankly <laughs> <laughs> you know like it's like it's like mm, I, I mean like like two two three two five like something that then I could transport back and like be like all right I'm gonna buy like a like a mansion in the woods and I'm going to endow, you know, some, some organizations <laughs> right. yes. and I'm going to y- y- like the payoff would have to be really significant um, in part because, because I don't want to be the, I don't want to be that dumb to the world again. Oh God. And that's and like, that's du- the like, thing. like, like the, 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 the dumbness of my 24 year old self in part was, as you're saying, John, because I was really cut off from from accessing certain emotions, I was like constantly invalidating myself because also it didn't it didn't you know the the world generally and the people that I was around at twenty four were not interested in me being my false self yes. at twenty four and so you just really i think um you learn to silo what doesn't serve you. And I was just um, a constant pushing down a constant sort of simmering, simmer, simmering rage because I thought the problem was me rather than like, no, this is a perfectly normal reaction for everything that you're going through and everything that you've been through. And very fortunately, um, in my mid twenties, I found uh, um, a wonderful therapist who's a Buddhist nun, and then she really, she really taught me a thing or two. So. Um, and that just that was like kind of the first time that I was able to even just get beyond my own flailing perspective. You know. Totally. And the ways in which I was driven by shame and was driven by jealousy and was like no sense of what was right for me just always the external reach you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. and just uh and when you were talking earlier about like having to be the best and playing those games career-wise you know just like Mm -hmm. the shit that I bought into and the ways I contorted myself in order to go after prizes that I don't even I didn't even know if I really wanted and I certainly in retrospect realize I did not it's mm-hmm. it's yeah I don't know 10 million I think honestly <laughs> I think I think yeah. you, you know I and I really I feel like that awareness is really a big um part of of my you know very early 40s was realizing um all you know really I would say mourning that there was a kind of mourning for a few years of all the ways that I had, as you said, contorted yourself. I, you know, for me, it was really, I've made myself very small. 
Yeah. Very small, just so I could be in the room with certain men, whether it was my boyfriend or it was a man who was going to help my career or whatever. Um, don't, don't, uh, don't emasculate him by being um, as smart as I naturally Oh, God. Am, right? Yes. Right? And so then, so then, you know, for me, it was kind of, I, I, I really started to have that awakening while I was at Pitchfork. Um, I was the first woman hired in at a senior level and not brought up from, you know, being an intern there. I was hired at a senior level, first woman there in 19 years, you know, since they were founded. Um, and I was 38 and real like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> if you've never hired a senior, you know, a senior woman before and I'm your first senior woman, it's pretty intense yeah. girl. Um, and, but, you know, around that time, I think I really started to have, um, that awareness of, okay, well, I have the thing that like, you know, supposedly I was working up to this whole time. I'm here. I don't want it. Uh, I'm building, you know, with my blood, sweat and tears, something that does not actually benefit me. It does not sustain other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it sustains a system that I is is the whole problem, you know, and and then there was this at the in my early forties, just really kind of a mourning for all these things that I had believed, all of these things that I went along with, even though I didn't believe them, um, kind of a mourning for that lost time and even lost energy. Mm-hmm. And then coming out of the other side of processing that is a new and different liberated energy where I'm not really interested in doing something that doesn't feel good, build something beautiful, um, benefit people who need it, um, isn't genuinely useful to a world that I want to be part of building. And and in that, the further liberation is the power to say, no, we're not even right back to people's idiot emails, not correct people, not whatever. Just, I just feel over it. And I also just have a really different um, sense of value about my, my time, my energy, um, and what's important because I gave so much of that away for so long, even as I was doing, you know, ostensibly uh, feminist work and building my career. And I just really want something different. And maybe that is like, um, that, you know, you read books, but it's like postmenopausal women being like, I don't give a shit, you know. Um, and I, I really feel like that's that's the big gift of being um of being in my forties and, and being in that place is like all the things I did to like, try to be cute because if, if I was cute enough to somebody, they might hire me or they might not consider me so intimidating. All this shit, (laughs) you know, I, I like, and it's like, not to be like, and I just wear moo-moos and be cute for me. But that's, you know, that's, a, that's, it's, that's, it's the, the pandemic gift in itself. But like, to just not believe, 
to not believe that anymore, to not think that that was an okay use of my time. To not be consumed in that same way. I don't ever want to be, I don't give a shit. That's the one thing I'm like, don't look at me. Like, I don't want, like, it's the best, it's the most relieving thing to be like, don't look at me. I don't want to fucking, I don't want my value tied up in my looks anymore. It's over. That was Mm -hmm. such a painful thing to have to go through the preening and the, just all of it. And I think about the relationships I missed out on with women because I was busy yes. focusing on the men who had the power and, you know, in the, or the sexual relationship or whatever. Or competing or, com- or competing with the other yeah. women. I, I, I feel so sad about that. If you want to talk about grief, I feel like I missed out on knowing women throughout my life because I was distracted with the game that I was a part of. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there was very few women. There was very few women in the in the world that I was in. But just in the last couple of years, there were some women who I've always thought were so, so cool, who were kind of on the periphery of either my social or professional world, who were about the same age. And, you know, in the, in the sort of moments of mourning and clarity that came after, um, I've befriended a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And we've even talked about the things that some of, you know, and this is, I'm talking about like when we were like 25, right. that the, the, the men in our world would tell us about each other, the way that they would, that these other women would get talked about, particularly women who were really maybe a little bit further ahead of me and like not giving a shit. Yep. Um, and us kind of comparing notes later on being like, Oh yeah, and he already he always said da 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 about you, and so I I just thought you hated me or I thought yes um, whatever, and then we're like, well they did this, and you're like, oh my god, this whole fucking thing is just a plot. This was a plot to keep us from comparing notes, yeah, and and kicking these motherfuckers out of the scene, yep, <laughs> you know, eighty sixing their bands or their whatever from what we were doing or from. God forbid, what could we have done if we had, like, you know, formed a kind of, like, a a Voltron, you know? Or, like, what is it, like, in, in Transformers? Yeah. Like, where we all go together to make one supercar? Yeah. yeah. We would have run them over. I know. You know? I know. And so, and, and so I just, it's like, I really, um, I would like to maybe take, like, a, you know, I, I, I think this is less the case these days. Um, but I think it's still pervasive. Like, I feel like there should be like a sort of um, almost like decision tree um, that we like post up in like the venue bathroom. It's like we we paste it up. That's like, is a man telling you not to talk to this other lady because she is crazy right. or because she doesn't like you, but you think what she's doing is cool or you think she looks cool or whatever. Like, if yes, then call her, you know, um, I, I because I just... I just am so curious about what, and I know not everybody is like that. I mean, I think I I was well groomed in wanting to to have have a certain amount of power in these scenes too, because I wanted the freedom to do what I wanted to do, and didn't fully realize like, oh, I can I can build this myself, and I and I did build it myself right in different ways over time. But um, yeah, I think I think that's the 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 liberation of now. 
I'm building it now. I'm, you know, I started a production company with my sister after um, my sister was uh, the former publisher of Rookie for seven years. And, and we started a production company and, you know, I say no to anything that I feel less than like super enthusiastic about, you know, I, I, I just, I let go of so much of the should about all of this. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and in that way, I feel like I'm back to my 19 year old self and, and the, all the fuck you, I may have different wisdom. I hopefully have some, right? but I feel like I am, I am back and like in, in partnership with her in a way. Right. Well, yeah. Connecting to that spirit, I feel like is, I feel like connecting to that spirit plus wisdom is really the best we get at this age. That younger mm-hmm. spirit. But anyway, Kim, sorry I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say that felt like a really lovely spot to end on. But before we do, I want to ask you what the three albums that you turn to repeatedly are. Ooh. Well, Cocteau Twins, Heaven in Las Vegas. Heaven in Las Vegas. Heaven in Las Vegas? Jesus, what is it? <laughs> um, my memory is terrible. Welcome. Welcome to... <laughs> my age um the records i turn to are in this uh, i'm gonna say in the in in like in forever time not just in pandemic time because during pandemic time i've been listening to a lot of this great record called um wind chimes in the australian outback and it's just the sound of like animals I don't know, and like these beautifully mic'd wind chimes. Highly recommend it's oh, over wow. there on Spotify. Mm-hmm. I find it it's extremely mellow. Um, because there's times I couldn't even handle music. But like my all timers are uh, Cocteau Twins, Heaven or Las Vegas, Joni Mitchell, Hissing of Summer Lawns, and God, can I pick a LaBelle record? Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to, well, I'm trying to narrow it down. I'm trying to narrow it down. Um, now I'm just like looking at my shelves like I've never heard music before. No, this is what always happens to me when somebody asks me to list everything. And I realize asking you to list this no, is, I, very, is very male of me. No, 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 it's not. It's not. And, and, um, and the other... And the other thing that I've been listening to right now a lot is the new um, His Golden Messenger record because I have a real dad rock penchant too. I For a mom, choose. I have a real dad rock streak. <laughs> I have a real like, like I'm on the Wilco Steely Dan nexus a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. lately. And I, I like dad rock. I'm, I'm somewhere in between like if dad rock and yacht rock had a baby, that would be my taste in music lately. That's like my permanent wheelhouse. Um, I, I really, well then I have to recommend to you um, that you uh, that you get into this His Gold Messenger record. We got to keep you away from like getting into like Steve Winwood and Dire Straits. Like really taking a, like a, oh, a no, shit no, no. turn. That, that was, unfortunately that was 16 year old me. Okay. Okay. Because I, I mean, I, I, I can't say I didn't listen to a lot of traffic as a teenager. Oh God, that's a bridge I too know. far for me. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> what, what can I say? Never would have admitted that when I wrote about music. <laughs> well, now we know the real truth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jessica, where can people find you so that they can find your book, find everything about you? 
I, well, I hope they can't find everything about me. Good <laughs> um, you can find me generally at jessicahopper.org because jessicahopper.com is the uh, stripper, Jessica Hopper. Um, we are different. <gasps> Who follows me on Instagram? <laughs> yeah, she's like, she's like a, she's like a, um, Maybe not stripper, but she she's like a pole dancing famous person. She was in the, the Red Shoe Diaries. She was briefly an actress. Good for her. She's done Playboy. I know <laughs> I all was about actually, her. I was actually excited because I was like, oh, Jessica Hopper follows me. That's cool. <laughs> and it was, it was the pole dancing lady. It wasn't you at all. Yeah, so I'm .org. Um, uh, people can also can find my books through, you know, bookstores generally now uh you know but through through uh I, I always recommend people order from women and children first which is my local feminist bookstore one of the last eight feminist bookstores in america and uh and people can also subscribe to my newsletter while they're on my website which i update sometimes a couple every couple weeks sometimes every year it's been really hit or miss so you know, it's there it's there um, thank you for having me on your pod, which I love to listen to so much because I love to listen to women who are my same age talk about anything. <laughs> Aw, thanks, this Jessica. This is so good. Thank thanks you. so much for coming on. Um, thank you for having me, y'all. Bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms that really helps people find us. You can also find bonus episodes and bonus material for the show on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We are on Instagram at EIF podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. 